Well, it was May 4th. Three men, two of them engineers, one a shift supervisor, waded into a dark, flooded basement. They were searching for drain valves, which were the only way to remove the water from the space. And they were wearing neoprene wetsuits, they were carrying flashlights, and they were working their way through this myriad of pipes in this sort of search for a needle in a haystack until they finally found the valves they were looking for and they were able to drain this water out. Now, turning valves doesn't seem like any great act of heroism, but I don't know that I could overstate the importance of what these three men did uh, on that day. In fact, what's amazing is they did it knowing that it was almost certainly going to cost them their lives. Just days earlier, it was my 12th birthday, so it was a while ago. It was uh, April 26th. It was a Saturday in 1986. There was a test being run at their energy facility. They were essentially making it the same conditions as a power outage so that they could develop some new safety procedures. And this test went really wrong. In fact, it led to a chain reaction of events that led to an enormous explosion right outside of Pripyat, Ukraine. And it was one that would capture the attention of the world. 1.23 a.m., this test led to a bunch of unstable conditions. They were uh, made worse by some design flaws that weren't noticed until it was too late. And what took place was a nuclear chain reaction in reactor number four of Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Anyone remember this? Kind of took the news for a while, right? Well, there was this colossal amount of energy released in, a, in, in an instant. And there was so much energy that the water that was used to cool the reactor was suddenly superheated, causing the steam explosion that led to an open-air fire in reactor number four that they say released 400 times the radioactive material as the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. It was a massive, horrific event. In fact, millions of acres of land were contaminated. Uh, A number of people died. Tens of thousands of people were rapidly evacuated from their homes permanently in this exclusion zone. And in the midst of this, as the disaster unfolded, firefighters were desperately trying to cool down this reactor and they were throwing water on it and throwing water on it and throwing water on it. And eventually uh, they thought they had this thing under control. And so everyone was kind of calming down until a few days into this authorities to their horror begin to realize that the reactor is in fact still melting down. And in fact, they're looking at something that would be a far, far greater disaster with exponentially worse consequences because Underneath that reactor was a basement. It was where some of that cooling water was normally stored that had exploded, but now it was full of water from uh, extinguishing the fire and this molten core of nuclear material. The only thing separating it from all of this water was this thick concrete floor that it was now eating its way through, if you will, sort of like hot lava. If that water was to make contact with that nuclear material, it would lead to a monumentally more destructive explosion. In fact, it would have leveled the plant, including three additional nuclear reactors. Scientists say that it would have leveled 200 square kilometers. It would have destroyed Kiev. It would have rendered much of Ukraine uninhabitable for generations. It would have probably killed millions. It would have impacted certainly all of Europe, and probably uh, the globe would look a little different today if this had happened. So facing this doomsday scenario that few even realized was unfolding, these three men volunteered for what was considered a suicide mission. 
They would wade into this water beneath this reactor, contaminated with deadly levels of radioactivity, and they would search in the darkness for these valves that would allow them to drain 5 million gallons of water that they couldn't pump out. One of the men's senior engineer, Alexei Ananenko, tried to say that five times, uh, recalled being told by his boss that he didn't have to do this. It was his decision. He wasn't being forced. But he said he felt he had no choice because he was the only one on shift who was familiar with the location of those valves that needed to be turned. And so as these three men prepared, they were reassured that their families would be well cared for. And these three heroic men, Alexei Ananenko, Valery Bespolov, and Boris Baranov, valiantly laid their well-being aside to save countless lives. In fact, it's hard to imagine the destruction that would have happened had they not been successful. So these, these three men, often referred to as the Chernobyl Three, were willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of strangers. And by turning those valves, they literally changed the history of Europe. Now, why do I share that story with you? It's because I find that stories of self-sacrifice tend to move us. They get our attention. It's pretty universal. Uh, there's something in our soul that often connects with these. We can't help but have an emotional response sometimes just at examples of self-sacrifice, of her- heroic behavior like this. Uh, before the Super Bowl, some of you were probably watching that. I remember my son's attention was caught by the story of Kyle Carpenter. They were honoring him. Uh, maybe you know the story. He's a Marine. In 2010, he was on a rooftop security post in Afghanistan when the Taliban launched an attack at daybreak. And he noticed a grenade flying into his sandbag, sandbag position. And in order to save his fellow Marine, he, he dove towards the grenade and was, was wounded pretty horrifically. But in 2014, he was the eighth living recipient of the Medal of Honor. Remember that story, Charlie? It got his attention. There's something about stories like this that move us. So one of the questions this morning is why? Why do those stories move us so deeply? Why is it a universally revered thing to lay your life down for someone else, to self-sacrifice for the good of someone else? If you think about just about every book that's great, every movie that's great, this is the storyline. Someone gives of themselves sacrificially to save someone else. So why are we so affected by that? Perhaps you remember the words of Jesus. Uh, He said these when he was about to be arrested and crucified. This is in John 15. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for one's friends. And he says to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command. And then hours after this declaration, Jesus did just that. He laid down his life for his friends at the cross. That's actually, we were singing about that earlier. Now, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not this morning, Jesus is right on this one. Like, Jesus is right. There's no greater love than self-sacrifice for someone else. Self-sacrifice is pretty universally understood to be the highest act of good. And we find ourselves often captivated by examples of it. I think there's two things wired into the fabric of who we are. You might call it our souls. First, I think all of us, whether we consciously recognize it or not, We have this hope within us that someone somewhere would love us enough that if that moment came to it, they would give their life for us. I think we all want to be loved in that way, that we we all hope someone values us so much that if it came down to it, maybe they would even give their life up for us. And at the same time, don't we all hope we're those sorts of people? 
Don't we all hope that if we are given an opportunity like those three-minute Chernobyl, that we, we'd be the kind of people that would say yes to that? So whether it's the story of these three men in the water or Kyle Carpenter or whatever story you might fill the blank with, we're moved by heroic examples of self-sacrifice. Again, why is that so powerful? Why is that revered? Why are we hardwired for this? I mean, as a kid, I remember, what were the things I wanted to play with my buddies? Well, we wanted to ride our bikes and play chips. If you remember, anyone with me on chips, you remember that, Ponch and John? Always wanted to be Ponch, never John, right? Because Ponch was a cool one. But we'd pretend we were heroes, or we might pretend we were in the A-team, right? Anybody remember that one? Fire thousands of bullets and nobody ever gets hurt. We, we played those stories out as kids because we wanted to be the hero. We were practicing that idea because even as kids without realizing it, we were caught by those sorts of stories. The question is why. So to face that question, I want to consider the nature of God together uh, as well as our own nature this morning. If we go back to the very beginning, the story of Scripture back in the garden, we find God creating a very good world into which he creates humans, into whom he breathes life. And these humans are unique from the rest of creation in in that they actually are created in the very likeness or image of God. Our created purpose from the beginning, you've heard me say this before, our created purpose from the beginning was to walk in relationship with God as we reflect God's love and represent God's goodness. That was the intention. Now, if you know the story, these first two humans had one rule, right? Just one rule. By breaking it and eating of the tree of good and evil, they were in fact rejecting God himself. They were revolting against God. And if you know the story in the aftermath, suddenly they're looking for fig leaves because they see their own nakedness in a new way and it horrifies them and they're hiding from God. And God's first act is one of sacrifice. Animals end up dying so he can provide skins to cover their shame. He provides them clothes. And so this rescue operation begins to restore these humans who've now revolted against God, who've broken fellowship with God, whose spirits and some have died. God eventually, as part of this plan, calls a group of people to himself. Not because they deserved it or were anything special. He just wanted to bless this group of people so that they could in turn go and be a blessing to the whole world. Well, if you know how the story goes, they continue to revolt. They continue to do wrong. Again and again and again. That's how the story goes. These people become enslaved by another nation. God rescues them. They're even given a means through these practices of sacrifice to uh, try to connect with God in the midst of their sins, but they still keep revolting against God. These humans trying to make right what they've broken, trying to uh, fix it themselves, continue to revolt against God. Even prophets are sent to speak on God's behalf, and they're ignored. This revolt goes on. And so when Jesus comes, Jesus tells a story, simple story. He tells it to a group of people who buy into this idea that if we're good enough, we can fix it. These religious leaders in Israel at the time. This idea that if we're good enough, we can earn God's love and God has to make it right. And so Jesus tells a story. We find it in Matthew 21, if you'd like to turn there. It begins in verse 33. 
speaking to the religious leaders, uh, Jesus says, listen to another parable, a story. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. But the tenants seized his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Nice folks, right? Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way. He sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. No idea what's going on with that mic, Jim, but we'll try to get through it. Uh, Come, let's kill him. What, What happens there? They revolt. Let's take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This is the story Jesus tells. And then he asked these religious leaders a question. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The answer is obvious. He's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And so Jesus goes on to explain the scriptures. And as he does, these religious leaders realize this story is really about them. He's talking about them. And so how do they respond? Do they, do they fall to their knees and say, help? No, they, they continue the same old story of revolting against God. In fact, Matthew tells us in verse 46 that they were looking for a way to arrest Jesus right there, but they couldn't do it because everybody knew he was a prophet. Imagine being that blinded by your pride and your, your religious arrogance and your rage. That Jesus, the people that the, the one that everyone else can understand is clearly someone sent from God you want to arrest and kill. So humans trying to restore this problem uh, that we call sin, this revolt against God that really we're all a part of by choosing to follow our own lead instead of God's, this revolt that leads to our inability to walk with God and even more uh, our, the impossibility of accurately reflecting God's love and representing His goodness. Humans like you and me trying to restore this by being good enough is essentially, by being religiously moral enough, if you will, is essentially the same as a really great swimmer driving up to seaside, jumping in the cold water of the Pacific and trying to swim to Hawaii. Like it doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps, you're not capable of doing that. In the same way, our story itself shows us that we aren't capable of restoring what's broken in our souls and in our hearts. Perhaps that was why we so universally long for a hero. So Jesus sacrifices his life at the cross to atone for, that means to pay for our sins, to overcome the effects of our revolt in the only way possible. In Jesus, God comes and sacrifices for us. The same Jesus who said the greatest love is lying down your life for another does exactly that for you and for me at the cross. That's the story we celebrate. It's a moving story. It's moving because the very fabric of our being, we recognize we long to be loved in this way. It's pretty universal. Again, why is that? Why are we all that way? Could it be that that desire is wired into us for a reason? 
that it's some deep subconscious place in our souls that there's, there's just an inkling of a recognition that we can't do it, that we need help. In Jesus, we see, uh, we've talked about God's love the last couple weeks. We talked about the immensity of God's love a couple weeks ago and how undeserved it is. And last week, we just touched on the idea of God's justice and, and holiness. And, and what I want us to understand this morning is that God's love is, is sacrificing. It's self-sacrificing. And, and what we see Christ do at the cross is really only the culmination of that. In fact, in Philippians 2, you're welcome to turn there. Paul speaks of this reality. He's calling these followers of Jesus uh, to live with a Jesus-like love and the way they treat one another. To have the mindset of Christ, he calls it. And he describes that in this way. In, in talking of Jesus, he says, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That same Jesus earlier told his disciples that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That's a sacrifice. As a ransom for many, he says. What I want us to understand is that Jesus didn't just sacrifice at the cross. His entire lifely let me try that again. His entire life on earth was a sacrifice. All of it. He left heaven itself to be born as a man. And even that, not as a king. But if you know the story of the nativity, it's difficult from his very first breath to his very last. His entire life. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the perfect representation of God. The image of the invisible God. It's in the life of Jesus that we see the heart of God. Jesus did what we are not capable of. He gave what we could not earn at the cross. He provided a way out at last from this cycle of revolt and death. And Jesus shows us the sacrificial love of God. Paul puts it this way. This is to a letter to the Roman church. He says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. So for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, how did God demonstrate his love for us? Through sacrifice. Through the sacrifice of Jesus. God loves you and me so much that at our worst moment, Jesus was willing to wade into the darkness to sacrifice his life in order to atone for our revolt and to provide life for our broken souls. Friends, that desire we have deep within us to be loved in this kind of way, that someone somewhere would value you and would value me enough that they would give their life, I think it points towards the one who's already done just that. At the same time, that desire we have within us that we would be the kind of people who would give of ourselves heroically, that's precisely what we were created for. We were created to represent the goodness of God, to reflect the love of God. This is what it looks like. 
but rather than waiting for a Chernobyl-like moment to come along. It's when we follow in the way of Jesus, when our hearts begin to value the things Jesus values and our lives begin to reflect His. In fact, it's in the everyday, often seemingly unimportant moments that when we live this kind of life out, God's love begins to be revealed through us. When Paul refers to the nature of Jesus in Philippians 2, which I just read from, that Jesus who made himself nothing on our behalf, he actually precedes it with this plea. At the beginning of Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Paul writes, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain what I read earlier of Jesus making himself nothing. So what's the game plan? Well, it's to be united, to be united by love, that rather than living out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, that's the idea of you know, just accumulating more and that's what I'm worried about and trying to impress other people. Paul says in, in humility, we're called to value others before ourselves. Rather than pushing our way to the front, rather than being obsessed with getting more or having the advantage, that we're called actually to set ourselves aside and to focus on lending a helping hand, on lifting someone else up rather than ourselves, focusing on the needs and wants of others. By the way, this is a great summary at the beginning of Philippians 2 of what it looks like to reflect God's love and to represent His goodness in our lives. This is the highest calling. This is the captivating life story that we long to be written into. This is what we're created for. This is why that value is hardwired into each one of our hearts. We were created for nothing less, you and me, than lives of self-sacrifice. Now, it may not look like... (laughs) What happened at Chernobyl? But we're called the lives that are compelling in the way we give of ourselves and in doing so lives that image the goodness of God. And the good news is you don't have to wait for a nuclear meltdown to do this. We can live this way today in ways that often seem insignificant. Early in his ministry, Jesus invites as he did with some others, a scandalous guy to be one of his disciples. And even more shocking to those religious leaders, Jesus goes to this man's dinner, or his house for dinner, and he's surrounded by these sketchy, disreputable people. And the religious leaders begin to object. And there's something in Jesus' response that's really caught me these last few weeks, and I hope I can explain this well this morning. This is in Matthew 9, verse 12. It says, on hearing this, And maybe you're familiar with these words. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this to a bunch of religious people who know the scriptures forward and backwards. He says, go and learn what this means. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And when he's referring to sacrifice, he's referring to their system of sacrifices, of doing acts of good. And he says, I actually want mercy. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from Hosea. And what is Jesus getting at? Because we were talking about sacrifice, right? The religious view of sacrifice is that I do something to make up for my wrong, and it's, in a sense, a means of control. If I do enough of these good things, I can earn God's forgiveness and favor. I, I can control that. That's sort of the religious approach. But Jesus calls them not to offer sacrifices, but to be sacrifices, to give mercy, to live sacrificially. There's a big difference there. There's a big difference between doing a bunch of good things in in a religious moral context so that I can earn God's love, because that's still about me. That's still about control. That's about getting what I want ultimately, versus living a life that I just give away, that I sacrifice on behalf of others. The second is what Jesus tells them to go and learn. I don't think you can learn that from a book so much as you learn it from experience and from following the lead of God's Spirit. Jesus calls us not to offer sacrifices, but to live sacrificially, to give what isn't deserved. This is what mercy is. The good news this morning is you don't need to be more religious. We don't need to earn God's favor. But rather, we're invited to follow in the way of Jesus. We're invited to receive God's love for us. We're invited to a life of mercy and sacrifice for others, a life that we hope we're capable of living, right? And Jesus isn't going to force us to wait in the darkness. But at some point we realize the love of God and we begin to see the real danger that our neighbors and our loved ones face being separated from God. Again, Jesus isn't going to strong arm us. But at some point, it's as though we realize we're the ones who know where the valves are. We don't really have a choice. We're the ones called to step in. We know the good news. And like Alexei Anonenko, we become compelled to act for those around us in love. That's the story of following Jesus. I want to close with just considering a couple questions. Rick, maybe you can bring these up on the screen for me. The first is just this. Am I focus more on sacrifice or mercy. I think this is a really pertinent question for a group of people at church on Sunday morning. Because it's really easy for us to fall into that habit of trying to be religious, trying to earn something, trying to do good stuff to make sure we rise to where we want to be rather than being people who focus on giving mercy and walking in the way of Jesus and the way God intends for us. I think this is a good question to write on a sticky note on your dashboard or to put in front of us you know, am I focusing on sacrifice and mercy? Am I trying to earn something? Or am I focused on the needs of others? Paul lays out what it looks like to follow the lead of Christ. And secondly, it's kind of a prickly question. Where do I recognize I'm acting in my own ambition and, and seeking to look good? I think about the way I'm living my life when I think about the things I chase. Is it just my own ambition? Is it just stuff for me? Am I just trying to put on a good look in front of the people around us so I'll be respected or liked? 
kind of prickly question. And finally, what's, what's one simple thing that I can do today to just simply put someone else's needs before my own? You know, it might be doing the chores you wish somebody else would do. It might be mowing your neighbor's lawn who can't get out and do that. It starts with these simple practices done again and again and again and again and again. Again, not to earn anything, but to learn a lifestyle that looks like Jesus. So I would ask us this morning, would you consider, is there something, maybe God would nudge you, just something, maybe it's not simple, maybe it's hard, that God would invite you to do today as a step towards this life of mercy, of putting others before yourself. And then I would just say this, and and we're going to pray. It's really easy to keep striving and fighting and trying to be good enough and trying to make it so God has to love you rather than just accepting God's love by faith. You know, we as humans like this reciprocity thing. If, if I'm given a really, really expensive gift by somebody and I got them something really lame, you guys know how that feels, right? Like, I got to make up for that. It takes faith to just rest in the reality that God loves you. That in Christ you're forgiven. That we're invited into a life that seems impossible. And so this morning, what would it look like in a fresh way just to accept God's love for you? And to rest in it. And to find joy because that's what powers us to live this kind of life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. That is beyond my understanding. Father, thank you that Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. That by faith you invite us into a new life. One that's fully forgiven. One where we're somehow again able to in some way carry your image. We ask that you would Make us aware of where we're chasing things that are selfish ambition. We ask that you would open our eyes to the ways around us even today that we could lay down our lives, whether it's in simple ways or in hard ways. And God, we ask that because we want to reflect your love. We want to represent your goodness as we were created to. And most of all, we want to walk in fellowship with you. So we ask by your spirit you would lead us Father, we thank you for your example. And we thank you that you empower us to follow in it. Amen.